Welcome to The Deep End, the podcast that meets you at the intersection of communications and current events and tries to find a less rocky road to help us move forward together. In this episode, OK Snowflake, Deconstructing Generational Mistrust, we'll take a look at how generations and the way that they talk to each other collides in the workplace and how we can better get over those challenges to have a more constructive conversation. I'm your host, Vicki Krajewski, and my guest today is author, speaker, and educator, Adam Kingle. Adam, thanks for joining us. Uh, my great pleasure. Thanks for having me. Adam literally wrote the book on next generation leadership, literally, uh, and it was published in February 2020 by HarperCollins and is full of fascinating research. He's got lots of insights, and I'm really excited to have him here today talking to us about what he found out and what he can tell us about generational communication. He was the executive director of thought leadership at London Business School for nine years. He teaches and lectures at numerous institutions, including Imperial College London and Duke University's really innovative corporate education program, Duke CE, and just overall has a lot to tell us about this really interesting topic. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, there, there's there, we, when we talk about diversity, we sometimes ignore uh, age diversity and the misunderstandings thereof. But I think it's absolutely critical to get uh, to get our heads around this topic. Your personal tagline on your webpage says that you work at enabling human-centric leaders to navigate a turbulent world. Let's talk about that turbulence. What is some of the stuff that you try to address in your talks, your courses, all of the work that you do? Well, of course, we're speaking right now amidst COVID, right? And we're still in the very worst of lockdown. We're as locked down as you can be. And I think that just throws up the idea that the turbulence and the uh, convulsions that are happening in our world uh, are only increasing and they're happening at a frequency that I think is new. The frequency of convulsions and the acuteness of the negative impact of those is only increasing. And uh, I think we've got it all wrong now in terms of, therefore, how we think about how do we manage ourselves and our teams and our companies in relation to change and innovation and adaptability. I think probably prompted by the industrial age and by the hierarchical models of management that were inspired by the military, we tend to approach change initiatives as if they're long drawn out military campaigns instead of a reflexive autonomic process where if something happens, we simply react to it almost without thinking. And we know that those organizations that can approach agility with that level of reflexivity are those that uh, are the most successful and have been the most successful in the 21st century. I think part of the solution to that is to be more in touch with those qualities of our humanity that organizations tend to repress. And those are changeability, innovation, and inspiration. Isn't it ironic that we know that as human beings, we are filled with those qualities. And yet when we come together in these social constructs known as companies, we tend to experience a deficit of those. So clearly there's something wrong with our management model. And I would like to think that that is what my career is dedicated to fix. We're having these conversations with leaders in various spaces, and it's incredible how you find these connections and these themes emerge that are 
about authenticity, a purpose, and navigating through that with a cause and a kind of goal in mind, but also this like incredible need for change, like right now. So what made you write this book on next generation leadership? It's really interesting. It actually goes back 10 years. I was directing an open enrollment program for London Business School Executive Education called the Emerging Leaders Program. So these were young leaders. Uh, these are, you know, their CEOs uh, and board directors of the future. And what I noticed, what I was observing, cohort after cohort, was that they had very different views about work, life, careers, and leadership than I did and that my generation, which is Generation X, had when we were entering the workforce. And also their HR departments or their sponsors of their companies who were sending them onto this program were almost saying, could you fix them, please? <laughs> could, you, could, could you somehow engineer this, uh, this diversity out of them? Because we don't know how to manage them. So I really wanted to get under, well, what was behind those very different paradigms? I also wanted to answer for myself were those paradigms just an example or symptom of life stage. In other words, oh, we were all like that when we were that age, they'll grow out of it. Well, certainly I found that that was not the case. And of course, when I started to look deep into generational theory, you know, I learned that every generation is a product of the context in which they were raised, be that parenting paradigms, the state of the economy, the state of institutions, whether they were being defended or torn down, whether there was a period of peace or war, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. All these things affect how a generation tends to uh, observe and experience and react to life. So what I discovered is that their views are so different, it actually allowed me to peer into what the future of work will hold. Because surely, when these people start becoming the leaders of our organizations in their own right, that means a lot of the ways in which we lead and think about business and commerce and capitalism is going to evolve. So that's what started the whole research behind the book, because I thought that the themes were just too interesting and too profound to ignore. Yeah, yeah. And they are. And I think the way that they initially started manifesting themselves was conflict, wasn't it? I mean, I remember some of my first managerial roles were of very young teams. And I did think, and I'm honest, like, what is wrong with you people? Like, yeah. can you talk about that conflict and what that looks like and what are the competing values? Well, I mean, first is this point that you just made in terms of how they wish to be managed. You know, our generation, and we actually have this in common with baby boomers, is still more the idea of, you know, you follow orders. Part of that came from the managerial class, which filled organizations immediately after World War II. And their managerial approach was, as I said, much like the military. Well, Generation Y doesn't have that view. They have the view that, you know, explain to me why we're doing this. And only when I understand the point of it can I, you know, sort of get behind it. But, you know, let's be honest, that's no bad thing. Funny enough, it improves our management uh, ability. And that is Gen Y really got a raw deal. You know, they were entering the workforce or were still young in the workforce during the Great Recession of 12 years ago. Today, amidst COVID and another obviously massive recession, their careers are being hampered, disabled as a result of this. And of course, you know, we experienced some recessions, Gen Xs, but, but nothing like what they're experiencing and not the frequency of one on top of another. And there are also systemic things that have changed. Organizations' pension plans have gotten dramatically worse. Inflation of wages have not kept up with inflation of consumer goods. 
when I was going to the university, my parents were paying hefty tuition and I took out loans as well. But in the UK, for most Gen Xs, they didn't have to pay a penny for college tuition. And in fact, they were often paid a stipend to go to school, to pay their living expenses. Well, that's no longer true. And so now, not only is their economic situation already worse as they enter the workforce, but also they're starting out with much more debt than Gen X or baby boomers typically experience. So as a result of that, there's less loyalty to any given institution because the desirability of employment life, the stickiness of golden handcuffs is all disappearing. So we think, well, why do they not want to try hard to make a good impression? Well, it's because they haven't experienced a good impression from the organizations in which they're working. So when I talk to HR directors, for example, I often begin by saying, yes, what you are finding is that Gen Ys or millennials don't have a great sense of loyalty. And you know what? That is at least partially your fault because you have created the context in which it is less desirable to be loyal to a given organization. Yeah, I mean, and, and I think that started breaking down really for Generation X, right? I remember entering the workplace and having an elder generation to me, having had an experience of worked at one company for their whole life. And now that's transformed in the, with the gig economy to like not even working for a company. So I think that that social contract has changed massively like under the feet of people walking. Our grandparents tended to have only one or two employers their entire careers. Our parents tended to have four, five, six, maybe, you know, they're, they're in their whole careers. At the rate at which we are changing uh, employers, we're going to have probably seven to eight on average in our lifetime. And at the rate at which Gen Y is changing, they're going to have 15 to 16 employers. And of course, if you think about the numbers I just gave, two, four, eight, 16. It's very obvious that with every generation, the average number of employers in a lifetime is doubling. And that alone tells us that we have to rethink what it means to be an employee and an employer. Yeah, yeah. It's like the expectations on one side, you know, changed completely. And the promise as well. It's ultimately a trade, right? I'm trading you my life and my time for what, you know, for salary for, you know, but that contract has also transformed, I think, massively. Yes. Yeah. So there's more transaction, transactionality, let's say, in the employer-employee relationship. And also it's more immediate. So one thing that Gen Ys, for example, have told me when I was surveying them, you know, when they were in the, the Emerging Leaders Program and interviewing them is they want development and right away, they always need to notice that, that they're developing. It can't be just a reward for tenure. You know, like once you've worked here for 10 years, then, then we'll worry about your personal and professional development. No, that just doesn't work anymore. It has to be continuous. And that alone tells us that organizations then have to think differently about how they engage, you know, their, their people. That's very different from the organizations that we started in as Gen Xs, whereby it was like after five years, then you can sort of get this. After 10 years, you get that. Well, that's just a dead model. Yeah, yeah. And I think a lot of this has led to clashes. So you talked about people, you know, initially coming to you asking to fix these people. But I think it's even got worse than that to a very contentious and negative dialogue and ideas in the public space. I titled the podcast, OK Snowflake. And I'm talking about that intergenerational mistrust and bias and controversy. I mean, did you run into that? Have you seen that? 
Yeah, I saw it less in the Gen Ys I was interviewing, but I certainly see it in the companies that I'm talking to, the HR directors, the chief executives, et cetera, and what they're experiencing. You know, you mentioned like, okay, Snowflake, absolutely right. And of course, Gen Y's response is, okay, Boomer. And recently, there's been a lot in the press. So we're talking in 2021, there's been a lot about the tension between Gen Ys and Gen Zs or Zs people kind of, they're just about to enter the workforce. There's a lot of tension going on between them. Funny enough, Gen X tends to get away a little bit scot-free. And I think that's because as Gen X, if again, if I could generalize, I think we've been a little bit better about being a little bit more flexible in terms of our uh, neurodiversity. I read an interesting article that was saying Gen X are sort of standing on the sidelines, uh, you know, smoking a cigarette, watching everywhere, all the other generations fighting with each other. That's a very Gen X uh, generalization, but it's, I think it's at least partially true. Um, where Gen X is like the Canada of the generations. Um, <laughs> I love that. <laughs> But yeah, I think I think you're right. Well, we talked about why, for example, Gen Ys can get this reputation as being snowflakes, right? They always want benefits before they've earned them. They don't want to, you know, work hard. Well, let, let me just talk about that last point because to answer your question as succinctly as possible, I think one of the reasons there is this tension is that sometimes there's semantic discord between terms and conditions of employee life. And because the generations aren't actually talking the same thing when using those phrases, they experience frustration that they're talking at cross purposes. Let me give you a very quick example. It's around the phrase work-life balance. This might be the most interesting revelation that my research threw up. When I talked to Gen Xs and particularly baby boomers about the phrase work-life balance, they interpreted that as a when statement. In other words, if someone went to them, a direct report went to them and said, I'm interested, you know, I, I need more work-life balance, that was heard as a when statement. Like, you want to work fewer hours. In other words, you don't want to put in the time. You don't want to pay your dues. I paid my dues when I was your age. You're lazy, right, 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 right. And so it goes, right? And that creates this uh, resentment. But when I asked Gen Ys, because they said this was incredibly important, work-life balance was incredibly important to them. I said, well, what do you mean just, just to test our assumptions, right? What do you mean when you say work-life balance? It became very clear what they were saying is that it's a where statement. In other words, technology allows us to work remotely. So what they were rejecting is this FaceTime culture, you know, that I have to sit at a desk in an office. Remember that? Remember those days? Um, I have to sit at a desk for like eight to 12 hours, or I can't leave the office until the boss leaves, or et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. No, they weren't saying, I want to work from home all the time. And as a matter of fact, now, 2021, I think everyone's got a little bit sick to death of that. But pre-pandemic, what they were saying is, look, let's reject this idea that I have to sit at a desk handcuffed to the table leg you know, for 40 to 60 hours a week, because I can really work anywhere, anytime. We know that because of technology, that also means we're working on weekends, we're working late at night, we're answering emails in the morning before we're actually formally starting our workday. So let's just try to make life a little bit more livable by questioning the where part of that equation. There was a lot of tension just around this phrase because they didn't mean the same thing when they were having the discussion. So of course, they were going to be angry and frustrated and complaining about the other as a result of that. And that statement that you said, it was this way for me, so you suck it up. 
that is a big thing. The stereotypical, you know, the criticisms that are leveled at Generation Y or millennials. I mean, if you just Google millennial, you'll see lazy, you'll see entitled, right? And and some of that in very serious newspapers talking, you know, and, and not just, you know, trash tabloids, right? That's really permeated. But it sounds like you're talking about some pretty positive stuff. Gen Y, because they are the digital natives, they are the first generation to have the same amount of empathy for a cause or a charity or a crisis that's occurring on the other side of the world. Because they can consume it regularly and easily on their phones, it doesn't matter whether it's right in their neighborhood or across the street. It's been estimated that you know, they have consumed more news in their lifetime so far than a, a, another person would have consumed in their entire lifetime 100 years ago. You know, that's good. And of course, that we know that there are a whole lot of companies out there that are really poor about how to uh, find new customers and to connect with customers and clients remotely. Well, why are they hiring these expensive communications consultancies before they are first talking to their Gen Y employees? who are masters at connecting with communities and customers and colleagues around the world remotely instantly. Yeah, yeah. It seems like, and that's another theme that keeps coming up for us. So in talking about leadership and talking about communication, it's a shift that is needed that you're going to get left behind without if you don't just invite people into that conversation. And I think your research if I'm correct, pointed in that direction, that it's not about me telling you what to do. Why not ask those questions? Yeah, there's a very simple hack to this, right? I think it begins with convening dialogue, just convening conversations rather than continuing to make assumptions. And then your beliefs start to become entrenched and cemented, just as we would convene in order to enhance understanding among nationalities, religions, gender, you name it. The same is true for having better conversations and understanding amongst generations. Another really simple thing is, for example, to have reverse mentoring. We always assume mentoring is a top-down senior to junior employee. But if you agree with the contention I've just made that there's a lot to learn from our Gen Y colleagues, then what I encourage senior executives to do is ask a colleague or even someone outside your organization, but as a Gen Y or millennial, to be your reverse mentor to tell you about how they see the world. Because, of course, Gen Ys are 50% of the global work population right now. So it is important that you understand their views about work and life and how they consume products and services. You can't assume that your way of viewing the world is going to continue to be as relevant as it was 20 years ago. I have never heard before the bit about military approach spilling over into corporate, and that was a real moment for me. I, I can see how I've absorbed that. I mean, my grandfather was in World War II and my dad is a vet and it's this very structure, structure, always under duress, right? And, you know, go, go. And I have felt that way in my career for a lot of it, you know, and, and a lot of my supervision was in that style, you know, people managing me from that headspace. What do you say to people who are pretty baked into that way of marketing? Yeah, well, I mean, what you just kind of talked about, which is fantastic, is we're trying to uncover our own assumptions about how we experience and understand our world. And there are two massive assumptions around management that we need to address and we need to change. One is the architecture of management, this pyramidal, top-down, order-driven, 
style. It starts with organizational design, right? If I ask you in your organization, show me your organizational design or architecture, 99.9% of those pieces of paper that I would receive would be shaped like a triangle, right? We know this to be true, but it is not always true. And the other element that we have to address is the philosophy of management. If you look in a thesaurus in almost any language on the planet, if you look up the word to manage as a verb, the first synonym you're going to see, or certainly one of the first three synonyms you're going to see is to control. We have this assumption, even if we haven't surfaced it, is that to manage is to control. So management is controlism instead of enabling, empowering, enhancing curiosity and adaptability, innovation and inspiration the three most important topics that chief executives are telling me they need more of in their organizations. And part of the reason that they don't have it is not only because they haven't addressed it, because maybe they have, but the architecture and philosophy of their organization has retarded their ability to enhance those qualities. Right. And so what do you say about architecture? Because you and I had a little bit of a chat about future of work. You know, what, what are some of the implications of thinking about like, well, what should my company look like? Literally changing the way you see the future and think about what's my next step and who do I hire? I think we need to embrace a little bit more of the you know, the project or gig economy. You know, it's okay to give actually even quite important responsibilities to people on a contract or project basis, because that will fit more with often how they would want to work with you. And it might even make sense for how you want to work with colleagues and with your team. So we don't always have to hire people on a full-time basis. One of the people that I um, interviewed for my book as a Silicon Valley internet entrepreneur, he said, I only hire people for the stuff that is core to what we do. If we just actually need to figure out something like we need to find more clients in the media space, I should just bring in someone on a project basis to do that. And yet so many HR directors say, well, that's a need, so we got to hire someone. So our organizations get very big and weighed down, and then we struggle to give our employees everything that they wish for in that employee-employer social contract. And the second thing is we have to think about for our people, how do we help make that work life that little bit more livable? What my research showed is that there are a few things that organizations maybe should focus on. And luckily, it formed a little acronym, which is very handy. And that was RAPS, W-R-A-P-S. And it's just the W is work-life balance. So we talked a little bit about that. The R is reverse mentoring. We talked about that. The A is alumni networks. In other words, you should have, just like a university has an alumni network of former students, you should have an alumni network of former employees, former contractors, former clients and customers that you can draw on that because of course we're in the networked economy. So how much have you formalized and nurtured your network? Too many companies, when someone resigns, they sort of take this view of, well, you know, give me your badge, leave your laptop on the desk and don't let the door hit your ass on the way out. Instead of what can we do to keep a relationship going forward? Because of course, if people are changing employers with frightening rapidity, they might rejoin you a few years down the line. And then they've had, they maybe have been a customer or a client, or now they've taken on more senior responsibilities, or you know, maybe even they've gotten some leadership development, which by the way, you didn't have to pay for. And then you get all the benefits of that the second time around. 
And the P is projects. In other words, rather than think about a job spec, think about project specs, right? Break it down and be sure you're always giving people more senior projects or more projects where it's obvious that they're getting development opportunities. And then finally, the S is side hustles. We should encourage side hustles. So many people, and particularly Gen Ys, have websites on the side, clubs and other commitments, et cetera. And organizations too often are like, oh, well, that's just, you know, that's a waste of time. They should be focusing on their work, et cetera. And yet, for example, if I've got a little, you know, side business, which doesn't compete with my employer, maybe I'm developing entrepreneurial skills, leadership skills, financial skills, project management skills, et cetera, et cetera. So if my employer isn't going to offer that, then as an employer, maybe I should think about how do I incorporate that? into the employer-employee relationship. And in some cases, those things that they're working on might even be relevant to my own organization's mission. So just as we shouldn't automatically assume that when someone leaves, they are persona non grata, someone we should never speak to again, so too should we not automatically assume that a side hustle is bad for the employer. That's really interesting. I mean, it feels like it points to more lateral versus linear thinking. That feels like a transformation of that military, like march in a line kind of style, isn't it? There is a, you know, well, why, why don't we just throw open the doors and do it then? What keeps us stuck? Well, part of it we've discussed, right? We have to unwrap or undo some of the assumptions that we have about how organizations are organized and how they are led. So we kind of have to work on ourselves. So it's funny, I said at the very beginning, HR directors were saying, can you fix them, please? In a way, if you want the situation to improve, you also have to fix yourself because the world in which we find ourselves is becoming less relevant to the models in which we Gen Xs and baby boomers entered it. And then, of course, as I said, yes, we have to understand each other better, et cetera. But we also then have to run some experiments, right? You know, surely everything I've suggested thus far isn't going to work in every organization and fit in every context. But if we know we have to do one or a few or quite a few things differently, then let's just start by trying it in small, controlled, contained experiments. See how it goes. Do something different with one team or one employee or just one office or out of one region. See how it goes. Then you can uh, roll it up or roll it out. More and more, we have to think about change like an activist, bottom up. It's a percolating movement that spreads through intimate one-on-one communications and through social media rather than 80-page change initiative plans that are enforced, pushed, and cascaded top-down. Yeah, I develop software where I've done projects in both ways where Waterfall is, you know, the 80 page document and you've asked yourself every question conceivable before you put a pixel on a screen, right? And those projects, I mean, they take forever. You know, you get to the end and you don't even remember the beginning. And you just spoke to the real crux of the problem there for the Waterfall technique. It takes so long to plan it and sense check it and proofread it and communicate it to everyone that by the time you actually start doing something, the time has passed. Now you're already way behind. Right. Is there a generational difference in an attitude to perfection, failure? What do you see there? Totally, yes. I think uh, I grew up in most corporate cultures, which is never be found out, right? Always be perfect. Never show or demonstrate or admit to a mistake because that could be, quote unquote, career suicide. For Gen Ys, I heard a great phrase, which I'm going to repeat, which is perfection is the enemy of progress. So let's try and learn. 
and if we try something and fail, then rather than repress it, share it. Because you don't want your colleagues to make the same mistake. So I'm doing you a favor by saying, I tried something. You know, I controlled the risk by doing it on a small basis. Here's what I learned. Okay. And then what you start is a dialogue so that then you can try something different. And that's totally different for how we used to think about, you know, how, what I need to do to be successful around here. You know, it used to be be perfect. Today, I think it's going to be much more about how quickly can I learn. Companies will require roles in the very near future that don't even exist right now, which means that people will need capabilities that may not even exist right now. So our capacity to learn is the greatest ability that we need, rather than to be a very narrow, deep expert in one thing with the assumption that that's going to be valid and relevant for 50 years. Yeah, yeah. And there's something about that that is really liberating, I would say. Let's get rid of this kind of pretense of perfection. And I love, say it again, because I want to remember it. Perfection is the enemy of progress. There's another reason why we, we have to kill this idea of perfection as the way to go. And that is from neuroscience. So neuroscience didn't even know this when we entered the workforce. But neuroscience tells us that positive and negative emotions uh, are a zero-sum game. In other words, you can't experience a very positive emotion and have the same amount of a negative emotion at the same time. So if you have a dramatically positive emotion, then your negative emotions are depressed or repressed by almost the same amount. So what that means is that if we think about a change initiative through the lens of fear, fear of failure, then we don't approach it with enthusiasm and optimism and therefore, we continually check ourselves and say, well, hold on, hold on, hold on. Let's not do that yet. Well, we don't start that. We have to check. Or oh, have we risk checked X, Y, Z, et cetera, right? And so then we never actually achieve anything, right? At best, we discover, oh, we achieve maybe 40% of what we set out to do. Whereas instead, if we say, let's try it out. Won't this be a fun, amazing learning experience? Sure, let's think about how we control the risk, but let's just start. Won't that be amazing if then when we, when we debrief this, everything we're going to learn? And then when we approach it in that way, then at the same time, the fear and lack of confidence goes down by an equal amount. So, you know, I heard an, a, an amazing neuroscientist that, that I talked to a lot at London Business School who said, fear is kryptonite to change. And I think perfection and fear go hand in hand, right? That's why we uh, people who choose to be perfectionists, I think their motivation is fear. Yeah, yeah. And I guess a lot of that is leading into manage like how do we measure, right? Like how do we measure success at work? Are those things do you see change in in those spaces as well? It's interesting when I when I spoke to the Gen Ys on the Emerging Leaders program in my interviews and my surveys, and you know, I, I sort of asked this question: like, how how do you assess your success? How do you assess your engagement with a given organization? How do you know it's worth being there? And they say it's about the learning and the development. Note that rather than the promotion or the result of the annual review or something like that. So that requires that there's always this checking in going on between employer and employee. That's the other thing that I find that Gen Xs and baby boomers had trouble understanding is that you can't give feedback every six to 12 months. It's got to be all the time. 
You're in a meeting, you know, with your Gen Y direct report, you finish the meeting, give them feedback right then and there. What did they do that was great? What would you like them to work on? Not only are they expecting that, but they desire that. That's a plus. You know, we sometimes talk about this as the digital generation. I think I just called them the digital generation a few minutes ago, but I would also say they're the learning generation. And that is that learning is constant rather than sporadic or episodic. They don't live in the three-stage life of education, career, retirement. Education is continuous, but therefore it's incumbent on employers to be sure that they're always educating their people. So the learning and development function, whether that's formal or informal, in a company has never been more critical, not only to help companies be more agile and adaptive and innovative, et cetera, but also just from the perspective of employee engagement. Interesting. So if, if I'm a manager now and looking forward, what things would I want to be changing? Well, certainly I think organizations do have to think about, first of all, some of the really big questions, like what is our management model? What is our organizational design? But then on a smaller level, I think everyone who has a line management or team leadership is apply wraps, you know, the acronym that we just talked about, or even one or two of those things. You don't have to do all of them, but start. And if you don't want to do it with your whole team, fine. Start with one person and see how it goes and then adjust, you learn, and then you can expand that initiative. So that's a kind of a big picture view and then a micro picture view. Now, there are other things that you can do to help improve that culture of learning and culture of adaptability. So we haven't talked about this uh, so far, but my early career was not in academia or in corporate life. My very, very first career, I was a theater director. And I thought there were so many habits and paradigms and ways of working and you know mindsets that we had in the arts that I don't see in corporate life that I think they can really benefit from. One simple thing is maybe to consider how can you apply some of those little hacks? Like, for example, some really forward-thinking organizations like Google, like Bosch, have artists in residence to think about how do you provoke people to think differently? Because, of course, you know, if we don't expand the aperture of our perspective in terms of how we view the world and our customers and our ways of working, it's very hard to adapt and to challenge because we're always confronted with the same perspective. So how do you bring the outside in? Now, it doesn't have to be an artist in residence. Maybe it's an entrepreneur in residence. Maybe it's asking a customer to come and sit in on on a team meeting once or twice a year. That is a really simple way to deal with one of the most pernicious handicaps that we've discussed, which is to challenge your own assumptions. I think so much is about like opening up the seats at the table and that it's such a powerful thing you know, to get more voices. And it feels like that is a very tiny, simple thing. But in reality, it changes what we make. It changes what we build. Yeah. If I could put a headline in a lot of what we've been talking about is that profound change is often the sum of small changes rather than one huge initiative. You know, everyone changing one habit. If the whole organization does that one little thing differently, that's a huge change. But it doesn't require a huge amount of effort from any one person. And that means you can progress quicker. I mean, there's another great example that I put in my book, Next Generation Leadership. Zurich Insurance, right? A very old traditional company. When they took on a new CEO a few years ago, they wanted to refresh their values and their purpose because it's worth doing so if you've been around for over a century. And the CEO, very forward-looking, said, well, let's not restrict this conversation just to the board or to the executive committee or hiring a consultancy to do it for us. Let's ask a lot of our Gen Y or millennial 
colleagues. Because ultimately, if we're going to refresh our purpose and our values, what we're doing is engineering what the future of the character of our corporation looks like. So why don't we bring in the future of our company to do that? And yet, when companies have these very deep, profound discussions, they often keep it at the senior most level with, ironically, the people who are only going to be in that organization for just a few more years before they retire. Yeah, yeah. And are quite removed from a lot of the realities you were talking about. You know, a lot of the, you know, really impactful societal changes that are changing the core of what it's like to live, to have kids, to live and breathe. So I think there's been such a transformation there that if you're not listening and trusting, I guess there's an element of trust there as well, isn't there? Yeah, of course. Another great handicap of the pyramidal organizational design is that assumes the higher up you are in the pyramid, the more people are below you. And that means it takes more and more time to manage slash control all those people. The more senior I get, the more time I have to spend on that, which means less and less time I spend with customers. And so the senior most people who are making the decisions about their business model, whom do we serve, what are we offering, and how are we offering it, are the most removed from those very customers. Yeah. And also the people that are on the on the front line, right? Like it puts so much distance between your CEO. And we've seen that with a chasm in salaries that has opened. That's a trend that's not sustainable, is it? I mean, it's, it's not sustainable. It's not good business at the core of it, is it? Yeah. And, it, and it's not good for society. You know, we know that the more economic inequality there is in a society, the more tension it experiences. That's not my personal view. That's, that's what the research shows. If you don't believe me, look at any index you choose about happiest countries in the world under whatever criteria they use. There are a couple out there. The countries that always wind up at the top are Scandinavian countries. And the, one of the biggest reasons that that is so is that they have greater social and economic equity. And don't get me wrong, I am not a communist. <laughs> But but you've just described you know what one of the big tensions uh, th that occur in corporate life and that's cascaded into our our social life our life in societies. It's becoming more and more visible, uh, more and more impactful. I think you know those those changes we can see just the impact of of COVID that it's had, which is so you know uneven. I mean, some of us have you know experienced almost no change except, oh, you know, my, my office is on my desk in my kitchen now instead of in the office, right? Like, and that's, that's kind of it, right? Whereas people, you know, in different sectors, disproportionately women, right, disproportionately lower income, have just had their lives turned upside down and inside out. And that, that's a very structural thing, isn't it? Yeah. And that requires some, some really big picture thinking, but that's already happening. You know, lest we think that's impossible, Look at, for example, New Zealand. Now, you know, their prime minister, Jacinda Ardern, has gotten a lot of good press and how you know, New Zealand has managed COVID and indeed, you know, how she's managed the country. But let's look at one of her ministers, Grant Robertson, who is the uh, finance minister for New Zealand, name most people outside of New Zealand wouldn't know. And I totally understand that. But he said, you know, that as finance minister, you would assume that his primary key performance indicator, or KPI, would be GDP growth. Right. But but actually, he said, we have to look at all these other factors that create a healthy society. And particularly under COVID, we have to look at domestic abuse uh, you know, and sexual violence. We have to look at 
um, income inequality. We have to look at homelessness, et cetera. Because if we, if I as finance minister, I'm not paying attention to those KPIs, then how can we say we're a healthy society just because GDP growth is going up if we have, you know, the worst amount of homelessness in you know, in Australasia, or if we have, you know, the, um, we have these beautiful lakes and rivers, but we can't swim in them because they're polluted, etc. So, you know, it just takes someone to, to, to turn some of their assumptions on their head to think about, well, what do we need to be a successful society? Um, that goes a long way then toward that society re-envisioning re how it's going to proceed going forward, what will be its habits and paradigms. And then on a micro level, any company could certainly do the same. It certainly helps if the chief executive took the lead, like Grant Robertson did in New Zealand, but it doesn't have to be. There are plenty of examples, as I said, of huge change initiatives starting small and percolating up. So people should not feel powerless to, to propose or to try to, to be more adaptive, to be more innovative, to be more learning, um, and just start within your, your own sphere of control rather than feel, well, this is all beyond me. Right, right. And we can try those little things. I like that. I, th I think, you know, a lot of the perception around this has been like, oh, they want a ping pong table in the break room, right? And it's very superficial. But I think this discussion and your work and the change that you're talking about is not superficial at all. I mean, it's really about digging deep and seeing where am I? What are the biases I'm bringing to this table? What's this whole framework that I'm working within? And what about that framework is not working, right? Um, because if, you know, it's not just kind of out of the goodness of, of our heart that we would be concerned about a gap between CEO and, and worker salary, right? I mean, there's a breaking point, isn't there? Uh, yeah, completely right. And, you know, it, you're right. It just starts with maybe having more conversations, you know, internally and externally. So, you know, if people listening to this start to um, expand and cascade the same conversation we're having in their own worlds, you know, th then you continue to unwrap, unravel and investigate what assumptions we hold, which are true, and which ones need revision. And I think the brilliant thing is you can do that at any level. You can be a CEO or hired yesterday and do that in your job, right? Like you can show up and open the conversation. Yeah, we started by talking about, you know, the difficulties of managing our youngest employees. And of course, there's a whole other perspective, and you've just referred to this, is that our youngest employees aren't yet burdened with all of our organizational assumptions. So before we onboard them, and I don't like that phrase, right? When someone joins a company, we have to do an onboarding. Like that, that implies like get on board, right? Get with the program. Let's, let's stamp all your external perspective out of you as quickly as possible. Instead, let's mine their perspectives and their opinions before they inevitably get a little bit um, inculcated, before they start to uh, drink the Kool-Aid. Um, you know, let's try to keep them, keep that external perspective as long as possible instead of to compress it as quickly as possible. We have to think carefully about culture and how much of it is creating mono behaviors and perspectives and how much of our culture is about embracing diverse perspectives. Yes, there's a balance. Yes, there's a spectrum. But too many companies are way over on one side of it. We all have to think, behave, and do all the same things in exactly the same way. Yeah, yeah. And um, I guess it's about 
finding that balance, right? And it feels like conversation is always, it always comes back. And this is why we do a podcast on communication. It feels like conversation is always at the heart of it, you know, sitting down and understanding instead of judging, instead of coming in with, you know, my biases. And when I get into a conflict situation, doubling down, you know, and, and staying in that kind of contentious space. Yeah. And destroying the assumption of the leader as expert as well, right? Rather than saying, I have all the answers, maybe saying, I don't know who our customers of the future are. What do you think? How refreshing would it be to hear more of our you know, directors in our company speaking that way instead of, I have all the answers, do this? It's not only good for the people around that leader, but it's so liberating for the leader. It's not comfortable. For whom is that comfortable to always have to know everything? Who wants that role? Right. That's a great point. <laughs> if people assume they have to have all the answers, that's incredibly anxiety-inducing. You know, If nothing else, the energy required to pretend instead of to open up and say, this is what I think I know, but I'd, I'd love you to test my assumptions. And this is what I'm sure I don't know, or I don't know enough about. So you know, I think what this all comes down to is no matter how senior we get, how long in the tooth and how, you know, how many years we have behind us in our careers, we have to maintain and probably even grow our curiosity. Unfortunately, I think for too many people, the number of years that they have and their curiosity index are inversely correlated. And that goes back to this very point about one reason why there's tension among the older generation in the workforce and the younger generation in the workforce. So I go back to what I say to HR directors is you have to take some responsibility for this yourself rather than simply say, can we fix these youngsters, please? I love that. And that I think is one of my biggest takeaways from this discussion is that notion of curiosity, right? And bringing that to the table instead of this pressure that I'm the expert and I have to be perfect and I have to know it all. I have to find out. And it's such a nicer place to come from anyway, isn't it? Where we can build connections. I can seek to understand you instead of control you, as you're saying. Your book, I want to just circle back to um, Next Generation Leadership because it came out at, at the end of 2020. Am I right? Uh, beginning of 2020. So it came out in February 2020 in the US and March 2020 uh, pretty much everywhere else in the world, right at the beginning of COVID lockdown. Right, right. So if you were writing an addendum to that book, you know, what reflections have you had through that interim experience? Yeah, I think I think it's this point we've talked about earlier, and that is that as leaders, uh, you know, we know from through COVID that we have had to uh, change and adapt quickly and on a very large scale. But that requires every individual person to make choices. So I think what it's just this whole last year what has accentuated for me is it's up for me as a leader to create an environment in which my people are liberated to make some some individual choices. You know, and in so doing, I improve my culture and I also enhance my team's ability to pivot. And that surely is, uh, is a wonderful ability that for managers that almost across the board, you know, they're saying they need even more of. Yeah. You know, it's that notion of kind of letting go of a few things, which we've all been forced to do, haven't we? You know, you can't have someone sat at a desk and stare at them all day to make sure they're working. Like, you know, there, there has been an element of control that's been forced out of people's hands. And it's quite interesting to see. I mean, what do you make of how that's going to evolve going forward? 
Yeah. Well, let's not let a good crisis go to waste. You know, a lot of organizations pre-lockdown were saying there's no way we can have a very, you know, agile work from home policy. That would never work. Yet here in the UK, you know, there've been there were a number of surveys done by both the government and by a couple of consultancies asking companies, are your people less productive, equally productive or more productive working from home from home than they were pre-lockdown? And the majority said they were equally or more productive. So, so now, you know, already now COVID has exploded the lie that we always have to be in the office. Of course, I know there are benefits to everyone physically being co-located, but all the time, lockdown has proven that that is not the case. And so let's not lose those lessons. And also let's look behind at the, the what we did to get there. You know, in other words, to successfully work from home. What were the managerial processes that we maybe did differently to allow that to happen successfully in hopefully many companies? That's a great question that I hope managers and leaders confront themselves with at least one takeaway that they will have had from lockdown, because then hopefully they could infer some other lessons about improving their leadership from that one example. So yeah, it's really interesting. I wonder how much of this shift that we've been forced into with the pandemic and working from home has been informed by and will continue to pick up on you know the needs, wants, desires of Generation Y. Yeah, well, I think that's right. Uh, Gen Y has a lot to teach us about the future of work. I think what's interesting is that even though there have been tensions in the workplace as a result of Gen Y being in it, they are perhaps unconsciously in some cases, teaching us how we could possibly make work life a life more worth living. So is our understanding of Generation Y or Millennials kind of a Western-based thing? Or is are there cultural differences? There will, of course, be some cultural nuance from country to country or region to region. But the sample that I researched came from every continent uh, on the planet, save Antarctica. And I'm still working on that. One day I'll interview a a Gen Y penguin. But um, every uh, country and region that that I spoke to, that I researched, that I interviewed, that I surveyed, uh, gave back remarkably consistent results. So what I found is that on the whole, these generational paradigms that we're discussing are a global phenomenon. Wonderful. Many thanks to my guest, author, speaker, educator, Adam Kingle, for all of his great insights today. Adam, where can people go to learn more about your work and and hear more from you? Oh, really easy. If they just go to my website, adamkingle.com, it has a ton of my articles, videos, podcasts, webinars, and a whole section on my book. Of course, I hope also that if people are so inclined to read more, that they maybe consider uh, buying a copy, be it hardback, ebook, or audiobook. And I can recommend it. It's got lots of really uplifting and interesting reflections in it. And I can't wait for the next one, actually. (laughs) Oh, thank you. Thank you. Thanks again for being here. And thank you for listening. If this was interesting to you, you can find out more and get personalized coaching to help improve your communications and connections to people of all ages at ripple.com. For more great guests and insights into the communications issues shaping our lives at home and at work. 